Here's the second part of our look at Square Leg, a British nuclear war exercise from 1980, where the government imagined a Soviet nuclear attack on Britain, what they thought the Ruskies would target, and what the uh, results would be. Last week we saw that the Soviets would, in the Square Leg scenario, hit Britain in two waves. The first nuclear wave would be aimed at military and strategic targets, including Filingdales, where Britain's early warning system was. Then, the second wave came, and no siren sounded as Filingdales, by this point, was just ash. And this second wave was aimed at civilian targets, the cities, the people. And we saw that in amongst the big cities, Glasgow, Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield, Edinburgh, Birmingham, poor little Eastbourne copped it. And no one knew why Eastbourne, a seaside resort, was targeted for a whopping great ground burst. But we heard the journalist Duncan Campbell had a horrible theory. If you plot Eastbourne's fallout plume on a map, you see that... Under the right weather conditions, it would spread up and out and neatly engulf London. And when I listed all the targets there, all the cities which were set for a target in the second wave, London wasn't targeted. Under the square leg scenario, there were no bombs due to fall in London, either air bursts or ground bursts, but there were plenty of bombs falling around London, with two set to go to the west of London for Heathrow. And so the thinking there is that London wouldn't be physically harmed by nuclear bombs, but it would be absolutely blanketed in fallout from the bombs which are set to fall or burst around it. So that's what the two waves of nuclear war would do to Britain. Military and strategic targets taken out, and then they come back for us, for the civilian targets. So what else did Square Leg tell us of what nuclear war would look like in 1980. It's never an easy or pleasant thought to imagine cities being targeted with nuclear bombs, and neither is it easy to imagine the horror and carnage of Something like Heathrow being targeted, or looking at the map of square leg targets, the ports at Plymouth or Southampton or Dover, or of course the massive attack, absolutely massive, planned for my city, Glasgow. Of course, Glasgow is lucky enough to be relatively close to Faz Lane, which is the home of Britain's nuclear submarines, so we were in for a particularly bad nuclear attack under Square Leg. So letting your eye wander over the map of Square Leg targets, every dot is an absolute horror. The black dots on the map are the ground bursts, and the white dots are the air bursts. And as we discussed last week, the ground bursts, the black dots, are the type of detonations which produce the most fallout. They explode on the ground, as their name suggests, and create massive craters. The target is pulverised, turned to ash and dust and shards and sprinkles, 
and all that filthy mess gets sucked up into the mushroom cloud and comes back down later as fallout. Fallout is dust that is sucked up from the ground by the explosion. It can be deadly dangerous. It rises high in the air and can be carried by winds for hundreds of miles before falling to the ground. Well, wandering the map, which I've put a picture of on my Twitter account, Julie A. McDowell, wandering the map, we see ground bursts, those sinister black dots, stamped on the following locations. Dunray, Windscale, Dungeness. Of course, those places are nuclear power plants. We all know the absolute horror of Chernobyl. Everyone knows about it. Skip back through the podcast archive if you like and you'll find an earlier episode about my trip to Chernobyl. And there are lots of photographs from that trip on my website, juliemcdowell.com. The disaster at Chernobyl, it killed, well, we don't know how many it killed and we simply never will. We know how many workers and firemen were killed directly by the blast and by the radiation and the figure is 31. But we will never know, never ever know, how many were killed indirectly over the years and down through the generations by various cancers and heart problems and thyroid problems and birth defects. According to Seri Ploki's book, Chernobyl, History of a Tragedy, which I reviewed for the Times, Ukraine claims that three million of its citizens suffer from sicknesses caused by Chernobyl. And in another recent book, Manual for Survival, by Kate Brown, which I reviewed for the Irish Times, Kate Brown reminds us that we have simply no way of ever knowing the real death toll. Here's a short paragraph from my review which explains why. Truth was also masked by the inconvenient nature of radiation-induced death. It was easy to see the Chernobyl firemen had died of radiation sickness. But what of the thousands who died later? Victims succumbed to a, quote, complex of illnesses swarming their bodies like a murder of crows, end quote. And with lax Soviet record-keeping, these deaths couldn't be easily pinned on Chernobyl. The official death toll is 54. Brown says it could be as high as 150,000. So there we are, a quick look at the death and sickness caused by Chernobyl, which was a nuclear reactor where the core exploded. Remember, of course, that the Chernobyl plant had four reactors in it, four nuclear cores, but only one exploded, only one. And that explosion, of course, was a conventional explosion. The explosion itself was not a nuclear explosion. It was an ordinary explosion. I'm putting the word ordinary in quote marks there. It was an ordinary explosion which threw nuclear material up and out. So imagine then, if you can, what might have happened if Chernobyl had exploded due to a massive nuclear explosion. And if it was one which exploded not just one reactor core, but all four of them, exploding a nuclear plant with a nuclear bomb. Well, that's when things start to just inch beyond the imagination, beyond mine anyway. 
Chernobyl was not a nuclear explosion. It was an explosion which ripped open one of the plant's cores, exposing the burning nuclear core to the sky, turning that nuclear reactor into a, a wounded animal. Um, Seri Ploki's brilliant book likens the core quite often in the book to a wounded animal, which is screaming and injured and belching out all its radiation into the sky. So the core is lying there like a wounded animal, pouring out all this radiation into the clear night air over Pripyat. An ordinary explosion, now turn it into a nuclear explosion and turn that one damaged nuclear core into four of them. That's what Square Leg considered for Britain. All our nuclear plants over the country being ripped open by massive nuclear detonations and all the radioactive material being sucked up and thrown wide. It's just horror piled upon horror. So the square leg target map shows us a Britain which is pockmarked and riddled with these black and white dots. But now let's try and imagine what these dots mean. What these creases of the map and their scatterings of air bursts and ground bursts would actually look like on the ground. Let's try and go into the smoking streets. Square Leg predicted 29 million dead. Let's not dwell on that figure because there's no point, is there? No one can imagine or absorb the meaning of 29 million dead. But even with an estimate of 29 million dead, many people still thought Square Leg was being too optimistic. And perhaps it was, because when the Home Office were estimating these casualty figures, they worked on the basis that all households who had obediently followed the Protect and Survive instructions and built their pathetic little inner cores in the house would survive. What nonsense. Let's listen again to the official Protect and Survive advice on how to build a little nuclear shelter inside your home. And then you consider whether you think you would survive a nuclear onslaught with this type of protection. We have told you how to choose a fallout room in your home. The best place is farthest away from the roof and outside wall. Your fallout room will protect you, but you will make it even safer by strengthening a small part of it. This part will be your inner refuge during the worst of the attack. Making a refuge is not difficult. The main things you will need are shovel, boxes, cartons or large plastic bags, earth or sand. Start collecting them now. These things may also come in handy. Hammer, saw, screwdriver, nails, screws, string or thin rope, scissors or penknife. One idea is to make a lean-to of wood resting against an inside wall. Strong boards or doors taken from their hinges are quite good. Stop them slipping down the wall by fixing them to the floor with a strip of wood. Then cover the wood with bags or boxes filled with some heavy material, like sand, earth, books, or rolled up clothes. 
Don't forget to fix the bags and boxes so that they don't slip off. Oh, shut up, protect and survive. What useless, useless advice. I've never actually felt angry at protect and survive before. Normally I just mock it. Maybe I'm feeling angry because of coronavirus. The government dishing out useless, useless advice. The only way to survive the initial effects of a nuclear attack is not be there. So forget the cover of a door or a mattress or some bin bags filled with socks. Your only chance is to not be in the blast and fire zones at all. But city dwellers weren't allowed to flee. As we discussed last week, there was no evacuation plan by this point in the Cold War by the 80s. And neither was self-evacuation allowed. The government would keep saying, You are better off in your own home. Stay there. And this message would be repeated again and again in these final days on TV and radio broadcasts of Protect and Survive. Those who still chose to run, who packed the family in a car and headed for the motorway, would find themselves blocked, refused access and turned back. Because by this point, the main roads would have been closed to the public and designated essential service routes. So it's as easy as that, is it? Put a couple of barriers and a policeman on the motorway and expect the millions of urban dwellers to just shrug and go, ah, oh, well, and toddle off back home and count down the four-minute warning. Will they calmly go back to their house to sit under their flimsy shelter of a couple of doors and a mattress? Well, no. Not if human nature comes into play. Throughout the Cold War, Britain made feeble plans for evacuation, but they were tartly reminded by a politician that the public are not pawns who can be moved across the chessboard to the whim of officials. Any plan to evacuate a city, or indeed any plan for its reverse to to prevent people self-evacuating, must make room for panic and chaos and confusion because, as that quote shows, people are not pawns to be moved neatly across the chessboard. We simply must factor in human nature, which is messy and unpredictable and annoying. So just imagine, in the last days or last hours, people trying to evacuate a city. Even in times of peace, it would be chaotic. Even when all the roads are open and traffic is flowing freely, it would be a gargantuan operation. Even with the population in a calm, easy and compliant mood. So imagine a city trying to empty when war has broken out, or is about to. When the main routes out are blocked, and when people are irrational and panicking. And, another crucial point, when communications have been cut off. We've discussed that in a previous episode. One of the measures the government would take in this countdown to nuclear war is to disconnect the telephones. Only lines used by officials would remain active. So the majority of ordinary people would be trying to phone relatives to make plans to evacuate. Meet us at the house. Where are you going? Have you left yet? Where are the car keys? This is all suddenly impossible. The lines are dead. Horror upon horror. Chaos upon chaos. And what of those 
plucky, panicked few who do make it out of the city. Square Leg imagined that self-evacuees would flood into Warwickshire, increasing the county's population by 50%. Now, having reached Warwickshire, would they be welcome? Would they be given shelter and food? I doubt it. Consider coronavirus. Look at the attitude recently of people living in relatively safe counties and areas where the virus hasn't made much of an impact. I'm thinking Cornwall, Devon, Scottish islands. According to social media and various news stories, some of the people there have been, shall we say, frosty to those who are trying to get there to their second homes or to holiday homes to escape lockdown or escape the virus. So I imagine that that rather frosty attitude might be cranked right up to 11 in a war scenario. I just don't think fleeing city dwellers would be welcome in rural areas. So are self-evacuees or refugees or panicked zombie hordes, whatever you want to call them, they reach lovely rural Warwickshire and then... what? Government advice has already told them that any new county you land in will be under no obligation to feed or house you. So if that is indeed how it goes, they'll be left wandering Warwickshire when the bomb drops. Left out in the open. And that's the last place you want to be when the radiation starts to come down. I hope you've enjoyed this look at Square Leg. Although I could have saved the Home Office a whole lot of money if they'd asked me what Britain would look like after all-out nuclear war. I'd simply have quoted Ned Flanders, we're done diddly done for. So thank you for listening, and I want to thank one cool dude who joined my Patreon this week. Say hello to Chickle Chives, who joined yesterday. And it's thanks to patrons like Chickle Chives that you don't need to sit through adverts like other pesky podcasts make you do. Mine is funded by patrons who donate money each month. So if you want to support me, please look at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo. And thanks also to Patrick, who made a one-off donation through PayPal. You can do that by going to paypal.me forward slash atomichobo. And as I mentioned earlier, my website with all my writing is at juliemcdowell.com. And before I go today, let me just say thank you to the following patrons. Lisa Hughes, Tom, Jacqueline Brick, Charlie Connolly, Peter James Nicholson, Declan Crawwell, Dave Cardenia, Antoine Stumpf, Bill Capehart, Jeffrey Reed, Andrew Apostolos, Geert Kingma, Lane Raper, Charlie Brown, Rob Johnson and Amanda Nellist. 